Please fasten your seatbelts. The skies are rough and our two pilots have no idea where they're going. So kick back, relax, and enjoy your flight on no blackout dates. No blackout dates. No blackout dates. No blackout dates. Well, and that's what's fascinating about all this is for years, the queer movement has said, like, we just want to be normal. We just want to be seen as normal. We just want to be mainstream. And now we're finally there. And part of our community is like, pride is too corporate. I'm like, dude, look at America. Corporations are legally considered people. Like, if pride is too corporate, then you're saying you don't want pride accepted in America. And so to me, the fact that pride is becoming a holiday like any other is awesome. It means we're becoming more stream and more accepted, which is what we've been begging for for millennia. What's up and welcome back to another week of No Blackout Dates. My name's Tim. And I'm Evan. We got a special Pride Month episode for you today. We have Micah Meyer on the show. He is the first person to visit all 419 U.S. National Park sites. He also has a line of gear and clothing advocating for inclusivity in the outdoors. And he is a speaker that has spoken at events all over the country. We're going to get into it with Micah in just a few minutes. But first, Evan has a great hot take to kick us off. Well, speaking of gear, my first question for you, Tim, is, is expensive luggage worth it? I've been seeing ads a lot for luggage that costs upwards of one or two thousand dollars, and I'm just wondering who's actually paying for this stuff. Is it that much better than a one hundred, two hundred dollar suitcase? I don't know because I've never tried that stuff. But I, I, you know, I have, I travel with a Tortuga set out backpack. I've had it for four and a half years now. It's not cheap, but not expensive. I love it. I don't think I would ever spend more than that. Yeah, I think anyone who's listening knows that I only travel with a backpack, so this question doesn't really apply to me, nor am I qualified to really answer it. But I, I've always wondered, like, what... It's kind of like steak. You can get a good steak for, like, 60 bucks, But you can see restaurants that charge $200, $300 for a steak. What can they possibly be doing to steak past the 60 to $80 mark that's making it that much better? Like, is it really worth the extra $200? It's because they're massaging the cows. They're like in Japan, you know, they're massaging them. So are they massaging the luggage? Like what is a 200 is is like a $2,000 piece of luggage really worth the jump in price that its price suggests? Or is it just like I mean like, isn't it like clothing though? It's just cuz it comes with that big Gucci. Yeah, is it just all branding or, like, or what is it? You know, but yeah, like, it's everybody wants that big Samsonite logo on their on their suitcase. Also, whenever you say Tortuga backpack, for some reason, all I can think about is a tortilla backpack. And I picture you walking through an airport with this giant flour tortilla strapped to your back and all your st- your clothes and everything like being held together inside this giant flour tortilla. Is that weird? That is. And yeah. I have held back saying it because I didn't want to be weird. But I, I'm lo- now... I, love, I love tortillas. I, I eat a lot of tortillas. Me too. But... There's an idea. Edible backpack. <laughs> okay, hear me out. You get you go you go hiking. You get lost in the woods. You have your camp set up. You run out of food. You want something to eat. There's no stores around. There's no meat. There's no animals to hunt or kill. What do you do? You eat your tortilla backpack. I just think that the tortilla backpack would attract bears. Yeah, that's true. Desert island though. <laughs> desert island maybe yeah desert, you get away with the desert that. island tortilla they call it for five thousand yeah. dollars 
It's like those uh, those bowls you get at Mexican restaurants, like tor- those taco bowls, tortilla bowls. You can eat that, and you, you eat all the, the the contents, and then you can eat the shell around it. Yeah, that's like the backpack. You ordered a salad, but you basically just ordered a freaking yes. chimichanga. So you because, use the back use the backpack to convey know. all your stuff on vacation, but then once you're done with the trip, you eat your backpack. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, then you got to carry all your stuff home or buy a new tortilla backpack in the destination because they're obviously going to be sold everywhere. You come home and you're like, fuck, I'm hungry after that long flight. I'm going to eat my backpack again. <laughs> <laughs> all right. The Desert Island Tortilla. Yeah. Check it out. All right. At a local Taco Bell near you. Desert Island Tortilla. Okay. So my hot take for you, Eben, I think that you would be uncomfortable at a multi-day camping festivals such as burning man is that correct or would you love a festival like that uh, i mean i think you're probably right it's tough for me to really say with certainty because i've never done a camping festival like that but what it entails is what you go to like it's like two nights three nights you set up a camp like a tent in a field with a bunch of other people that are partying and you basically do drugs and dance all day and then you sleep outside at night right yeah, or you stay up all night and you continue to do drugs. So I don't do drugs and I don't like camping. I think if I like the music and I was into the music, I was with a big group of like fun people that all had campsites all next to each other. I think I could see that being fun, but not for more than one night. Right, okay. So I think I would I would do that if I had the right group, the right kind of music, but not for more than one night. Couldn't do it for more than a night. Right. So I've been to two camping festivals, um, neither were like Burning Man at all, both of them, one of them was Riot Fest, which is like a punk rock festival, and the other one was uh, more of of like a uh, reggae, hippie kind of festival in the mountains of Colorado, and that one I will say like after, I think we camped for two or three nights, and I was over it by the end, like I do not enjoy being around people 24 hours a day especially hippies and i i was just over it like i like the one night thing i love camping but i like camping because it's solitude i don't like camping in the midst of a field of a thousand people that are that are partying all night i really that's it's not it's not my thing and like i'm i I enjoy a drink i like live music i love live music actually but like i it's just it's so much going on at once, and there's no break. It's hard for me. So you hate camping? I hate festival camping. I thought you were a huge camper. I had no idea. Hates camping. Tim Winger hates camping. Uh, no, you're overstimulated. That's the problem. Yeah, and there's there's nowhere to go. Like, you go back to your tent to have some alone time in the middle of the day. It's like 100 degrees in there, so you can't even sit there, you know? That's the problem. I would do, if it was a host, so again, music festivals, drugs, that's not my thing. But if there was a hotel, five-minute walk away, I could just go to the hotel, decompress, have some alone time, 100%, no questions asked, I would do it. Why not? New experience, I would do it. It's the fact that you can't get any alone time. You can't. You don't have a comfortable place to kind of retire to. You are stuck there. There's nothing else to do, nowhere to go, nowhere to sleep, nowhere to nap. And if you want to sleep, you probably can't because it's probably so loud. There's so much noise all around you that you just you can't. So you're not in control of your environment. And I don't like that. I don't like it either. And, you know, it's, it's I think it's kind of a it's a personality thing, too. I, like some people can deal with the like constant 
going and going and interacting and all of that. And like, I'm a pretty outgoing person, but I like to like then have my time to like just chill and recuperate and, and, and sleep most importantly. You know, I am not the type of person that can just party for four days straight. I don't enjoy that. Like, I remember back in college, you know, there's all the, there's, you know, you, you party and you party and you party. And then there's always the guy, and I'm thinking of a couple specific friends here, that you wake up in the morning and they're ready to start drinking again at like, you know, seven, eight in the morning after we've already been drinking until three. Like, I was never that guy. Yeah. No, no, no. Me neither. I can't do morning drinking. I'm not a good day drinker. I think Laguna Beach coming off the heels of, uh, or sorry, San Diego. We went to San Diego coming off the heels of our Laguna Beach retreat. That was one of the more sustained drinking marathons that me and you ever did together. And not that we went super hard every night. But we were basically in Laguna for like four nights. Then me, you, and a few other coworkers went to um, San Diego for three nights and pretty much drank every single night. And I remember by the end of that, I was toast. And there's no way I could have drank in the morning or during the daytime for any of those but there are people that did it and i just can't i I admire them and i am almost jealous of them can't do it can't do it all right well on that note we will get into it with micah we'll see you on the other side Micah Meyer is the first person to visit all 419 U.S. National Park Service sites. He's an avid traveler, speaker, writer, and an all-around good dude. Micah, welcome to No Blackout Dates. I wish I could have that introduction everywhere I went. Can I bring you on the road with me? <laughs> right, yeah. I'll, I'll just... a local bar. I'll be your hype man. I'll get up there, and we'll just get people jumping up and down, and then you'll come on and talk. Everybody deserves a hype person, right? Right, right, right. So... Let's talk first about this national park trip. I know, you know, you highlighted extensively on your site and it's been a big part of, of getting you the, the name recognition that you have. How long did that take? Why did you do it? And what were some of the biggest takeaways that came away from visiting every single site? Uh, so it took exactly three years. I began on April 29th, 2016 at 11 a.m. And I ended on April 29th, 2019 at 11 a.m. Wow. And that whole time frame came about because I met with, um, there had been like two dozen people at the time I started my journey who had been to every National Park Service site um, as the sites grew. You know, at one point there were 370, then 390, then 401 and whatever. And I met with one of those people and I asked him a question, which was, if you could go back to these parks, what would the ideal amount of time be to spend at each one? So we went through one by one, typed them all into a spreadsheet, and at the end it was 1,095 days, which is three years. So that's why it took that long when people ask, why a three-year road trip? I'm like, because I wanted to experience these places, not just touch them and walk out the door. Right. So what and what did you find yourself doing the most at these sites? What what At what point were you like, okay, I've seen this one, I can go to the next one? Oh man, that is uh, that's a tough question. Honestly, what I did the most at every site was I was on my phone sending emails preparing for the next park because everybody says, oh, I'd like to take a three-year vacation. And I'm like, shit, I would too. Because every park I was visiting, I was sharing posts from the last park, experiencing the current park, and planning for the next park all at the same time. So it was just like nonstop juggernaut. But actually physically in the parks i mean what's so cool about our park system is contrary to sort of popular cultural opinion they're not all out west 
every single U.S. state and territory has at least one National Park Service site. So I think a lot of people imagine that our parks are just these 25 sites that make up like over two-thirds of visitation. The Park Service just put out some report that said basically the majority of park visitors are going to the same few dozen parks and ignoring the other 300-some sites. Yeah, they think it's all Yellowstone, right? Pretty much, which you can't even go to right now because it's the roads right, are flooded right, right. out. And, and it's a perfect time to talk about my park's journey and all these other amazing parks we have because you can't go to Yellowstone. And if you want to go to Zion and Yosemite, you need reservations. And we are loving our parks to death, which is awesome. But, you know, everybody is going to the same ones. So if you really want to have a unique experience, look beyond the ones you've heard of. Okay. And, and you noted uh, we're loving the parks to death. What do you see as, is there an answer to that? What do you think needs to happen? So when I started this journey in 2016, the Park Service actually reached out to me and they were like, hey, you know, if you can drive people to these other sites, that's actually one of the missions of our 100th anniversary Find Your Park campaign is we're trying to spread out our record number of visitors into these lesser known sites. And so actually I'm working on a TV show right now that's all about those parks you haven't heard of. So if you're a Netflix developer and you're listening to this right now, call me because I've got a list of 60 sites that are my favorite out of all 400 plus parks and they're the ones that you haven't heard of and that people aren't going to. And so the goal is really to just spread people out. Visiting all these parks and kind of generating hype around it uh, as a gay man, how do you feel you were received? Did you face any stigma or what did, how do you feel your difference may have been different from, you know, straight white guy from any, any town USA? Uh, well, the big difference is I didn't see anyone like me. Uh, when I started this park journey, I, I Googled gay bear grills, queer national parks, just trying to find anybody who I could look up to and say, okay, they did this. I can sort of follow their lead. And there was nobody. It was just straight white couples living in vans and it made it it made it hard to believe that I could be myself and be successful in this culture, particularly because I was crowdfunding the journey. And so basically, the complete lack of LGBTQ plus representation in the outdoors industry taught me that if outdoor brands are so afraid of offending their customers that they're not even tracing chasing the one trillion dollar purchasing power of the pink dollar in America, then America's outdoors fans must be really homophobic because that's a lot of money that the outdoor brands were leaving on the table simply not to offend their base customers. So I essentially told myself I have to go back in the closet and hide this part of myself or America's outdoors fans will not support this journey. Speaking of companies and brands uh, catering to LGBTQ community or kind of ignoring them, since it's Pride Month, now is when you see all of these brands, Uber, Airbnb, whatever, coming out with these the rainbow logos and Pride Month specials and stuff. What do you feel about that? Do you feel like it's uh, a good faith effort on the part of these big corporations to be inclusive, or do you think it's more performative than anything else? I think all of it's amazing, and that's going to piss some people off, but I grew up in Nebraska, and First National Bank of Nebraska is not going to run a Pride Month ad. But when Wells Fargo does it, and Wells Fargo said this ad is going to go national, then it has to show up in Nebraska. And so I think sometimes we get hung up and we forget that 
okay, we've got TV shows with queer representation and presidential candidates. No, the vast majority of America lives in places that are not accepting and that it is hard. And most of us flee rural spaces and flee outdoor places to come to cities. And having been to every state and territory in America and spoken at churches across our country, I know that that's the reality. So for me, when a big corporation is willing to slap a rainbow logo on their logo, it at least says to middle America, y'all better catch up. I'm curious if, you know, because I feel like, you know, the outdoor community, a lot of it considers itself to be this progressive group of people. But the more and more people I talk to that aren't, you know, the straight guy from Colorado, like me, uh, I find out that that's not always the way it comes off and the way that it actually is. And I'm curious what you think needs to happen and how the regular everyday outdoorsy guy from Denver or Salt Lake City can go about welcoming people more. So this is really funny that you say this because in 2018, Outdoor Retailer, America's largest outdoor retail convention, moved from Utah to Colorado because Patagonia protested and the whole outdoors industry said, Utah is not progressive enough. So I went to that outdoor retailer festival and one by one I walked up to every brand and I said, hey, what are you doing for LGBTQ plus marketing? And the most consistent answer I got from everyone was it would be too politically risky. We would offend too many of our followers. We're not doing anything. And I'm like, hold up. You just said you're this mega progressive industry that couldn't even stay in Utah because of how progressive you are. And yet Marriott, which is owned and operated by Mormons, has been having a Pride Month campaign for 10 years, and you aren't? I'm right. sorry, if the Mormons are more progressive than you, you're not as progressive as you say you are. And now so, they're going back to Utah anyway, so... I know, I right? Know. So, basically, it, I when the brands weren't doing anything to fix it, I took it into my own hands, which is the symbol you see all over my shirt and this sticker I've got here. I made this, it's called the Outside Safe Space Symbol. Because what I learned is basically as a gay man in the outdoors, I'm thousands of miles from the closest gay bar. I might not have cell service. And there's a history of violence against queer people everywhere. So I don't know if the bro and the flannel with the beards and the IPA I'm talking to is cool with me being gay or if they're going to get offended and flip out and, quote, push me off a mountain, as I've gotten lots of hate emails have said. So... This symbol is something that outdoors fans can wear on their water bottle, put the pin on their backpack, so that if I meet them and I see it, I know this person's cool, I can be myself around them. And that's important because the history of the culture, as you noted, is otherwise. So we're not going to change that perception until individuals take it upon themselves to say, yo, I'm an ally, I'm going to wear this symbol to prove it, let's change the culture. Where can we get that symbol? Uh, OutsideSafeSpace.com and hopefully very soon in retailers across the country. That's another big project I'm working on is getting these in every single outdoor store so that this symbol becomes as recognizable as the Nike swoosh. You mentioned earlier uh, traveling to churches across the country, and you, you did funded your trip to national parks by traveling to churches promoting LGBTQ-inclusive Christianity. What does LGBTQ-inclusive Christianity look like? Are, I think a lot of people tend to view a gay lifestyle and Christianity as being mutually exclusive, but that's not the case. So what what does that look like to you? 
Yeah, so as I like to say, uh, America's Christians funded a gay man to set a world record. And if that's not Jesus flipping the script on popular culture, I don't know what is. Um, so I grew up uh, in the church. My dad was the campus pastor at America's largest Lutheran campus ministry. So when I say in the church, I mean like quite literally, like my artwork was drawn on the carpet while my dad was preaching the sermon. And so for, for me as a Christian, you know, I spent most of my life assuming that you couldn't be gay and Christian because that's what popular culture told me. That's what, you know, that's what modern Christianity espoused. And then when I became old enough to read the Bible for myself and do my own studying into scripture, I realized that was not the case. And, you know, Jesus never once says anything about homosexuality, but Jesus says divorce is wrong a whole lot. So anytime somebody says that I'm living the gay lifestyle and that's a sin, I say, hold on, are you divorced or do you know anyone who's divorced? Because they're living the divorced lifestyle eight times as bad because that's how many, or however many times divorce is condemned in the Bible, depending on your interpretation, like, it's very clear that the divorce lifestyle is wrong, and you had to sign an effing contract to say you're divorced. I could wake up tomorrow and decide I'm not gay, according to some people, but you signed a contract, so really, there's a whole lot more people living the divorced lifestyle than there are living the gay lifestyle, but that's why people don't like to condemn it, because it's a lot easier to condemn people when it's just 10% of the population when it's over half of marriages. So where does this, the Bible says being gay is wrong, come from? Because I feel like that's an incredibly pervasive conventional wisdom. <laughs> well, we're on a, a travel podcast, so I'm not going to dive too deep into biblical eg exegesis when it comes to literalists and non-literalists. <laughs> right. But more or less, there are a few verses in the Bible that depending on your culture, your background, and your denomination, how you read the Bible and how you assume the Bible was written, either do say that that homosexual acts are wrong, or it doesn't say that. And basically the, dif the difference is, like, do you take into account the culture of the day, that words 2,000 years ago meant something different than they do today? Sure. Uh, my favorite example is the word bitch. Uh, if 2,000 years from now you listen to a transcript of me and my gay friends talking, you will probably think we hate each other until you learn that the word bitch is not a pejorative and it's actually a compliment in our culture. So some people take into account the culture of the time when they're reading the Bible, and some people read the words literally as if the words mean the same thing today that they did 2,000 years ago. And that's where we get the difference. I mean, I think it's, a, it's an interesting topic, uh, you know, with the gay community and the straight community and the religious right because those are all in a way it's like a triangle I feel like and the more we can look to you know people like you Micah to, to kind of guide that conversation I think it's it's what needs to happen it's the only way people are going to think differently well and I'm like let's just let's just keep it real like I went to school in the south uh in the American south in the bible belt and and I learned sort of biblical literalism and and the rules by which people live by and what frustrated me the most is when I would say, okay, you're, according to your rules, this is true, and this is true, and this is true, correct? And they would say, yes. And then I'd say, but these two contradict each other. And, and they, would, they would just say, well, you just need to believe. And it's like they don't acknowledge reality or logic. And that's what drives me nuts is like we're advanced beings. We have the Internet. Let's have intelligent, interesting conversations. And you don't have to, you don't have to abandon your faith if one Thing changes.
We're going to take a short break from the interview for a word from our partners at Matador Network. Are you a travel writer, filmmaker, or an influencer who loves to travel the world for free? Check out creators.matadornetwork.com and explore one of our many press trips. Sign up for free. That's creators.matadornetwork.com. Happy travels. And now back to the interview. So it being Pride Month, uh, lots of places all over the country and even the world are having big celebrations right now. Um, I went to Denver's a few years ago, and it was great. It was it was really fun. I was surprised by how diverse the crowd there was also. And just, you know, of course, it, it was largely the gay community, but there were a lot of allies there, I felt, too. And I'm curious, I think now talking to you for the last 20 minutes, I have a general idea of your thoughts on it getting bigger and more popular. But what are your thoughts on on pride events becoming more mainstream look the majority of voters are not queer people so we're never going to have equal rights if we don't embrace our allies and if my junior year sociology course taught me anything it's that the only way that social movements change is when those who have the power are willing to give of themselves to make that change you know if 10 percent of the population keeps voting for lgbt rights nothing's going to change so we have to have allies for things to progress, which is why my outside safe space program is not targeting the 10% of people who identify as queer. It's targeting the 90% of people who don't, because I know that outdoors culture will not change unless it's the allies who agree to change. So to me, the more people who want to be involved in the pride festivals, the better. Also, we'd be setting a really shitty example of inclusivity if we said that pride was only for queer people. For example, this July, I'm competing in the Euro Games in, in the Netherlands, and it's basically like the Gay Olympics. Um, not just Eurovision. These are like actual physical Gay Olympics where people are running and competing in sports. And what I love about this event is they are very clear that this is designed for the queer community, but straight athletes are allowed to compete. So I think it's a really cool example of saying, you know, instead of clamoring saying let us into your space let us into your space it's the queer community saying let us show you how to create a space that is truly inclusive and we're going to do that by inviting the people who used to persecute us that's interesting and it's good to hear you say that because my town so i'm kind of like tim my town much smaller town i've like seventeen thousand people had a pride festival this past weekend and our town is very homogenous it's probably 99 percent white and straight and there was just big pride fest, balloon arches, there was a booze cruise, um, all the bars had pride flags and like pride themed drinks. And everyone was it, was, it was a lot of fun. But there were some of my friends who would say, is this weird that there's just a bunch of straight people all using pride as an excuse to party and drink basically? And is that ethically problematic? And I would tend to say no, because you're kind of like you just said, you're calling attention to inclusivity and celebrating difference. But I understood where they're coming from to a degree where you have all of these straight business owners and straight people coming out to celebrate something that they're not living through firsthand, even if they are doing it for a good cause and they're raising money for a good cause. So I'm guessing that from where you're standing, you're pumped about it. You're all for that. doesn't matter what the demographics are. As long as you're celebrating pride, you're here for it. Yeah. I mean, look at how much of like masculine history was all 
built around the idea of just not coming off as gay. It's like, don't cry or, or you're gay. Don't, you know, don't hug your male friends too long or you're gay. It's like everything growing up as a male is like, don't do X or people will think you're gay. And that's the worst thing possible. And so to me, like if a bunch of straight bros want to come party in a gay club for one weekend because it's a great party, that's awesome. Because 10 years ago, those straight bros would not be caught dead at a pride festival. So if if people are realizing that gays know how to throw a good party and that brings them to the table to get to know us and see us as equal human beings, then I'm all for it. I'm a honey over vinegar fly catcher and not everybody's like that, but at the end of the day, would you rather go to, you know, would you rather go to a comedy show that teaches you about <laughs> queer history or would you rather go to a PowerPoint presentation that yells at you and tells you you're an evil straight white man the whole time? Yeah. And do you think that's the prevailing view in the gay community or do you think that's you're you're unique in that sense not not to have you speak for the entire gay community but what is your experience been i think it's i think it's a mix um and and that's okay not everybody has to be the same that's one of the beautiful things about diversity is that we celebrate people different uh celebrate people being different but i do a lot of professional speaking a lot of speaking gigs and i do everything i can to make difficult subjects fun and funny I talk a lot about death. It was my dad's early death that propelled me into the road and motivates all the travel I do now. That's a hard subject to talk about. And I make sure I pepper it with humor because it makes it a lot easier to cry if you're laughing the next minute. So in the same way, when I talk about homophobia and I talk about my struggles, I make sure to throw in humor and pepper it with uplifting stories because it is a lot of sadness. It is a lot of tragedy, but there's also a lot of queer joy out there. And, and I don't think we're gonna attract people with negativity. We're only going to attract them with positivity, so that's what I try to put out. Hey, you know, Evan, those same those same bros are partying on Cinco de Mayo, also. You know, so it's it's you know, it's, and Cinco de Mayo is not even Mexican Independence Day. Oh yeah, I mean, so. pick like St. Patty's Day, fucking anything. Like pick any holiday that we're supposed to celebrate a uh, Memorial Day, uh, a somber occasion, or something that's socially important, and people just turn it into a party and drinking holiday. So. Yeah, I think uh, I think Pride Month's pretty much become that, at least in my town. Well, and that's what's fascinating about all this is for years, the queer movement has said, like, we just want to be normal. We just want to be seen as normal. We just want to be mainstream. And now we're finally there. And part of our community is like, Pride is too corporate. I'm like, dude, look at America. Corporations are legally considered people. Like, if Pride is too corporate, then you're saying you don't want Pride accepted in America. And so to me, the fact that Pride is becoming... A holiday like any other is awesome it means we're becoming more stream and more accepted which is what we've been begging for for millennia uh i'm i'm curious when you're on the road do you have a habit of going to gay districts or gay clubs and checking it out and seeing you know how it compares to to minneapolis or wherever you might you know spend a lot of time uh and and if so where do you find the best places to go totally so uh when I was traveling the country, I was also sort of figuring out where I wanted to move. And the largest metropolitan area in the U.S. I have not been to is Indianapolis. So other than that, like I've pretty much been to all of our major cities and checked out the gay districts and sort of seen what everybody has to offer. And what excites me is that the queer community is moving beyond the gay bar. Um, that excites me in the sense that like we don't have to hide indoors to have places where we can be ourselves or be accepted but also that it evolves the gay experience. I mean, I think a lot of the stereotypes about gay guys are that we like to party and drink. 
because when your community is formed around a bar, hello, what type of people are you going to attract? Drinkers. And so I'm excited now that, you know, a, a gay event can be a queer rafting trip like I hosted with some friends a year ago and that we can congregate around our interests that have something to do with other than we can congregate around our interests that are something other than drinking and that we can celebrate this full diversity of things that we like to do. There are uh, chapters around the world of a club called Frontrunners, which is an LGBTQ plus running club. So people come together over their shared interest of athletics and that's where they meet their gay friends. That's amazing that that, that is how we've evolved as a culture that began with the Stonewall movement at a bar. And since you've been all over the country, what city has the best, most fun, gay nightlife scene? Oh man, that's tough. I, I, what makes it tough is like, it depends what you're looking for. If you're looking for a dive bar and to meet like some of the most interesting queer people you've ever met, go to New York City because you're gonna be like next to a celebrity and a, you know, a hedge fund manager and a Broadway producer. If you're looking for like a massive club the size of a warehouse, go to Houston, Texas, where there's very few zoning laws and you can build a massive club, but you're not going to get that in New York. So it, it really depends on what you're looking for and particularly what type of people you're looking to meet. I've learned that certain cities sort of attract certain types of gays. Uh, when I was in Fort Lauderdale, basically they say they don't have daddy bars there, they have grandpa bars because there's so many gay male retirees that like that's sort of the main demographic. So if you go out in Fort Lauderdale, as a local told me, don't shoot me uh, if you don't agree with this, but the local said, if you go out in Fort Lauderdale, you're gonna meet gay retirees, strippers, porn stars, and bartenders. If you go out in Minneapolis, you're gonna meet a bunch of Target employees, Best Buy employees, 3M employees. Like Minneapolis <laughs> is a very corporate gay city that's probably like our number one stereotype if I had to pick one. If you go to Denver, it's going to be an outdoorsy gay who asks you on a hike for your first date. If you go to Seattle, it's going to be a tech gay. If you go to LA, it's going to be somebody trying to become famous or telling you about their Instagram account. If you go to New York, they're probably going to be an artist. Like basically, depending on what city you go, go to, to me, it's more about the type of gay person you'll meet versus the type of gay experience you can have. One last question I want to ask before we move on. Gay dating apps, are certain cities much better for gay dating, the online gay dating scene than others? And is that, is there, a, I'm guessing rural areas are not as booming uh, in that sphere, but similarly to the cities, do you, it depends what you're looking for. Certain cities are better than others for certain kinds of people, or some cities stand out as being much more easy to meet people online. Yeah, so I was taking some friends from Minneapolis on a road trip to Denver, and along the way we stopped in western Nebraska, which is my home state, <laughs> and, and we got to western Nebraska's largest city, which is about 15,000 people, and I said, open your grinder. <laughs> they opened it up, and every single profile was a blank photo, except for one guy whose headline said, hosting. <laughs> and so... <laughs> Yeah, it's such a it's such a difference from a major city where like every profile has a face photo, and so it really is. They're ashamed. They don't want to, you know, be out to the community because it's such a small community and people would know yeah. who they are. Yeah, because if people know you're gay, they might not hire you to work on their farm or 
I mean, there, and this is where I talk about, like, the reality of gay America is not what we see on the streaming networks. The reality of gay America is the majority of people outside of major cities are still hiding who they are because they will be treated differently if people know they're gay. They'll be treated negatively for it. So that's one big difference I see. The other difference I see is sort of culturally based on sort of uh, stereotypes on what type of people live in certain parts of the country, but also just the sheer number of gays. When I lived in Washington, D.C., there are so many gay people there that if you match with somebody on Tinder and they message you, you have like five messages back and forth. And if you haven't locked down a drinks or a, a coffee date, you'll never talk to them again because they probably matched with 30 other people that day. Whereas in Minneapolis, if I match with somebody and we're chatting for a week, I'll say we should grab a drink. And they're like, whoa, 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 you're really fast and forward. Hold on. So... It's just a cultural difference and sort of a, a reality difference of like when when there's a lot of people in the dating pool, you just can't waste time. Yeah, I've noticed that with my uh, my gay friends who talk to me about Grinder, and they it, it, from what they say, it sounds so much easier to make plans to meet up with someone from a, a gay dating app. Like I have to put in at least a week or two of back and forth steady conversation to have one date, whereas they're like. Sometimes it's just two or three back and forth messages and they'll meet up that night. And I'm like, how that would never, ever happen for me on Tinder ever. And they said it's just a different culture. People are more, you know, cut to the chase. Well, and it and again, yeah, it does depend on which app you're on sure. and what city, what city you're in. Because I really have found that people on the coast or particularly the East Coast are just a lot more willing to like meet up quick. You know, let's grab a coffee. As I say, we'll know in 10 seconds if we want to spend 10 minutes together, and we'll know in 10 minutes if we want to get another drink. So to me, I'd much rather do that than message forever ad nauseum on an app and then just get ghosted by the time I ask them to grab a drink. So kind of winding down here, I'm, I'm, you've, you've done an NPS trip visiting all 419 sites. You have a line of merchandise uh, looking to make the gay community more accepted in the outdoors. You speak at events all over the place, including at Stonewall. Where do you go from here? What else do you want to advocate for, and what else do you want to accomplish? So my number one goal since I started working in the travel industry has been to have my own travel show. And that's because growing up as a little gay kid in Nebraska, I watched a lot of Travel Channel. And even today, when you look at travel shows, it's a bunch of straight white men. And... I never saw anyone like me, so I assumed my only options if I was gay was to be a drag queen or cut hair. So it's really important for me to sort of be that badass gay bear grills that I always needed to see growing up so that the next generation of gay kids can see that and say, I can grow up and be a travel expert. I can grow up and be a full-time adventurer. I can grow up and be an outdoorsman. And thus far, we don't have that. So sort of all my efforts are all funneled towards getting my own travel show. So hopefully in a few years you will see me on Netflix taking you around to some of the world's greatest wonders. And at that point you'll know I have met my goal. Right on. Well, I, I can't wait to see that show, man. Uh, thanks so much for joining us, Micah. Where can people find you? Uh, just Google Micah, M-I-K-A-H. Uh, there's not really any others out there. Actually, Mika, the singer who's M-I-K-A, his name is M-I-C-A, but he changed it to a K because people kept calling him Micah. So if you just start typing Mika, M-I-K-A, and then add an H, you'll probably find me. But Micah Meyer, M-I-K-A-H-M-U-Y-E-R.com is where everything is. 
Right on, man. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Micah. Thank you. See y'all out there. All right, we're here in the news of the day after a great chat with Micah. So our first story today, affordable travel is the topic, including four gorgeous international vacations that are more affordable now than in 2019. Uh, An interesting descriptor there using the word gorgeous, although I suppose it does apply to all four of these countries, Chile, Sweden, Denmark, and Norway. Uh, You you can travel there now for anywhere from 3 to 14% cheaper, including airfare and lodging, than you could in 2019, which is contrary to everything else happening to us right now, Evan, that is way more expensive than it was back then. Yeah, why, what causes airfare to go up and down? Do you have any idea? Demand? Like, does that mean that there's not a high demand for going to Denmark? So that's why the fares are decreasing? What is it? I've always assumed that it's demand because that's, you know, that's what I've figured is behind, you know, the prices shifting over the weeks before your flight, you know, but I, I don't have a backup on that. Even for a gorgeous destination like Sweden and Denmark and Norway and Chile, <laughs> yeah, I'm overdue for a gorgeous vacation, a gorgeous I'm, international vacation. Yeah, I mean, I, I I suppose I just had one, but I'm going to Sweden next month, so I'm excited that I'm sure. I'm going to one of the places on this list. Although I don't, uh, it's a work trip, so I'm not going to be taking too much advantage of the decreased prices. But well, Chile is the biggest decrease, 14% decrease in airfare prices since 2019. That's that's hefty. Compared to Norway, which is just 3%. So if you're trying to go abroad and you want to feel like you're getting a good value, head to Chile. Gorgeous destination, right. so I heard. It's gorgeous. Sorry, not a gorgeous destination. It's a gorgeous vacation. Gorgeous vacation. Uh, the other factor here, though, that I guess isn't much of a surprise, given the news that we uh, had a couple of weeks ago about the euro and dollar almost being completely paired, uh, a lot of the factoring going into making these trips cheaper is the fact that the dollar is so strong against the currency in these places, and three of these places are in Europe. So I suppose that makes sense. Do you know what word I would use to describe the dollar being stronger against the euro? Beautiful. Gorgeous. 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 Just gorgeous. It's gorgeous. Too gorgeous, too furious. All right. Next up for me, we have an article called these are the 11 cheapest Michelin-starred restaurants in the world. And the article lists a bunch of restaurants that have set tasting menus that are under 200 bucks. So we got the cheapest one here being King's Joy in Beijing, China, with for $110 per person for a set menu. And the most expensive, number 11, is Rial in Italy for $187 per person that might not sound cheap but for a michelin starred restaurant where you're looking at you know up to 600 700 800 bucks per person not a bad value what do you think of michelin star restaurants tim do you think it's overhyped do you think it's worth the money do you put any stock in michelin stars i i have been known to collect stars um <laughs> what the fuck does that mean <laughs> that's the douchiest that's the douchiest thing i've ever said in my life i have been known to go you know, I've been to two Michelin star restaurants, Evan. One was in Bali. It was called Locavore. It was probably the best, one of the best meals I've ever had in my entire life. Uh, I it was expensive. I I definitely dropped a couple hundred dollars with the tasting and the uh, the the drink pairing, but I was full afterwards. Dude, look at me. I'm Tim. I go to Michelin star restaurants and I drop <laughs> several hundred dollars on tasting menus. Go on. Yes. The other one I went to uh, was Pujol in Mexico City, which is famous because of Chef's Table. Uh, the TV show on Netflix, which was really good, but it was like, 
I've got to say, like, earlier that day, we had, you know, just food at the market in Mexico City, and it was, you know, $3, and I was full after I ate it. And sometimes you go to these super expensive places, and you're still hungry. And how many stars were these restaurants you went to? Just one. They're not like the French, the, the super nice ones. Yeah. So you collected two stars. As a collector of Michelin stars, you collected, collected two, two stars. Yeah. Okay. My, yeah, I'm not, a, I'm not very far along in my collection. That wouldn't get you very far in a, in a Super Mario game, would it? Two stars. No. Uh, yeah, I, I feel the exact same way about... I think you're not going to have a bad experience at a Michelin star restaurant. You're not going to ha- have terrible food. Like You're going to come away being like, that food was good. But is it worth the exorbitant price? Almost always no, I would say. I'm never full. I think that if you find one, so you, one of your seven courses, if it's really, really good, you're like, damn, I want more of that. Too bad. You get two bites, and that's the entire dish. It's like it gives you just enough to like make you want more of it, but then there is no more of it, and it's one or right. two bites. That's it. It's over. So I kind of I, I, I think in almost every case, it's really not worth it. It's like going to a brewery where you get you can get a beer sampler, but then if you like one of them, you, you can can't actually have, have a whole one. That's it. You can have a whole yeah. You can't at a Michelin star restaurant if you like one of the courses. That's all you get. You right. Can't have I think they should a better way to do Michelin star restaurants or uh, set menu restaurants is they bring you all seven courses at once, all of them at once. They put them all in front of you. You have a little bite of each, whichever one you like the best. You say this is the one I want, and they bring you a legit full course of that full portion of that meal that's well what that's your best do. that's your best restaurant business concept that's so good. far on no blackout dates evan like of the other ideas you've had that's the only one that might be successful i know it's gotta come up with a name it's all about the name gotta brainstorm a name now all right cool thanks for listening to no blackout dates make sure to subscribe on apple spotify or wherever you get your podcasts leave us of course a five-star review and if for some reason you want to follow what we're up to, I'm Flow underscore on Instagram, and he's TimWinger1. Also, a big shout-out and thanks to our producer, Alex Halke, executive producer, Katie Hetrick, our email marketing guru, Kelsey Wilking, the Manador social crew, and everyone else on the team who puts up with us on a daily basis. We'll see you guys next week. <laughs>